You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Closing arguments began today in the Andrew Berry double murder trial. The Oak Bay father pleading not guilty to the murders of his two young daughters. Defense is up first, calling the Crown's case completely circumstantial. We'll remind you again that some of the details in this case are quite disturbing. Nadia Stewart was there in court today and she has more on what the jury heard. Nadia. Chris, Andrew Berry's lawyer focused his arguments on reasonable doubt, saying Crown has a responsibility to prove Berry's guilt and not Andrew Berry to prove his innocence. After 56 witnesses and weeks of evidence and witness testimony, the trial is now entering its final days before the jury is released for deliberations. Andrew Berry's lawyer, Kevin McCullough, repeatedly instructed the nine men and three women responsible for deciding the fate of the accused not to give Crown counsel the benefit of the doubt. McCullough saying, quote, the Crown case here is completely circumstantial, end quote. Defense argued no motive has been proven, highlighting what he describes as inconsistencies with the forensic evidence. McCullough also questioned the reliability of the blood splatter expert, saying no blood trail was found between the bedrooms and the other rooms. He also said investigators did not look for fingerprints on two suspected weapons, the bat and knife. Six-year-old Chloe and four-year-old Aubrey Berry were stabbed more than two dozen times, and Chloe was hit in the head with a bat. Berry was found naked in the bathtub with stab wounds, an attempted suicide, Crown argues. Yet no DNA from the children was found on Berry's clothing, and no evidence has been presented proving Berry's wounds were self-inflicted. Defense calls this an absence of evidence, saying, quote, the forensics team did a terrible job, end quote. Barry's lawyer was also critical of the testimony of first responders, suggesting each of them had a different recollection of what happened and raising questions about how investigators conducted themselves when they first arrived on scene. Closing arguments continue tomorrow and it will be defense up again. At this point, it looks like we won't hear from Crown until about Thursday, possibly even Friday. Back to you. Nadia Stewart in Vancouver. Thanks, Nadia. Well, we can now tell you new details tonight in the trial involving Curtis Segmoen. Segmoen is accused of pulling a gun on a sex trade worker in the North Okanagan in August of 2017. Global News successfully argued to have a publication ban lifted on voir dire evidence. And as Rumina Dea reports, we are learning more tonight about video and photo evidence taken in the case. In the police interrogation video, Curtis Sagmoen explodes. He looks like he's going to throw a chair. Sagmoen vehemently denies ever calling escorts to his house or threatening anyone with a gun. Mr. Sagmoen, any comment on the allegations? Do you think you're going to get a fair trial? Sagmoen is accused of threatening a sex trade worker with a gun while wearing a mask in August 2017. A photo of a bullet hole in the alleged victim's tire, just some of the evidence released Tuesday. Sagmoen has pleaded not guilty to five charges. In the police interview, which is expected to be released to the media soon, Sagmoen repeatedly tells the RCMP officer he's tired. He wants to lay down, but the officer continues to press him. Defense wants the evidence thrown out. Out, arguing the statements were not voluntary, adding that police used Segmoen's family as an emotional lever to keep him talking. 
While Sekmoen was in custody, RCMP launched a massive investigation of his parents' farm south of Salmon Arm. In October 2017, a grisly discovery. The remains of missing teen, 18-year-old Tracy Genero, were found on the 24-acre property. Sagmoen is not facing any charges in connection to Genero's death, nor has he been named a suspect. Police say the investigation is ongoing. Romina Dea, Global News, Vernon. Well, some breaking news now and another case for BC's police watchdog. The Independent Investigations Office is now looking into this fatal pedestrian accident in Surrey late Saturday night. A man was hit at 152nd Street and Highway 10 and was pronounced dead at the scene. The IIO now says the man who died had been released from police custody shortly before he was killed. The IIO is investigating to determine what role, if any, officers' actions or inaction may have played in the death. Some new details tonight about that deadly bus crash on Vancouver Island that claimed the lives of two students from the University of Victoria. Tonight we're hearing from a survivor, a young woman who was seated, uh, seated directly behind those who lost their lives. Kylie Stanton has her story and how the tragedy has inspired her to make sure it never happens again. For some reason, I remember it all. It was raining, dark, and the road filled with potholes was giving way. Like, it just felt like we were, like, teetering. In that moment, we went, like, all the way over. Sarah Hunter was one of 45 University of Victoria students on this bus Friday night, traveling the remote stretch between Port Alberni and Bamfield, when the bus skidded off the road, tumbling 20 metres down an embankment. Glass breaking, people screaming, the sound of, like, luggage and bodies falling. It was... <laughs> Hunter was one of the lucky ones, escaping with only minor injuries to her arm. But her two classmates, Emma Machado and John Geerdes, who were seated directly in front of her, did not survive. Finding out it was actually someone I knew and one of the only people that I had gotten to talk to on that trip was really hard. The news has been difficult for the entire campus community. Many gathering today to support the survivors and honour the victims. Yeah, it's been really shocking I think. It's like hard and people are still like I'm not getting used to it and adjusting and just trying to comprehend it. That grief is being felt right across the country. In Winnipeg Machado's parents say learning of their daughter's death has left the family in a state of shock trying to make sense of what's happened. I mean if we knew now what that conditions were of the road we probably would have told her that she shouldn't go but it looks like it's a very unsafe road to travel. Hunter shares their concerns. Um, right here we have the website links to change.org. And so she's decided to start and promote a petition now online, demanding politicians make repairs and upgrades to the treacherous stretch of road. In just a few short days, it's nearing 1,000 signatures and counting, each one helping to bring meaning to the tragedy. What I took away from this is that I don't want anyone else to be hurt on this road and I don't want these two students' lives to be in lost in vain. So something positive from an otherwise really tragic event. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A Surrey mother has been arrested in connection with a U.S. college admission scandal. 48-year-old Xiaoning Sui has been charged with one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud. 
She was arrested in Spain and authorities are seeking her extradition to the U.S. An indictment states that Sway paid $400,000 U.S. to Rick Singer, the man at the center of the scandal, to have her son admitted to UCLA as a soccer recruit. Sway is the second person from B.C. to be charged. Vancouver businessman and philanthropist David Sidhu is also facing charges. In total, there are now 52 defendants, including actress Lori Loughlin and actress Felicity Huffman, who became the first parent to be sentenced last week. Huffman was given two weeks in prison. The province is offering money to support the hundreds of forestry workers impacted by recent mill closures in B.C., but it's not exactly going to bail out the struggling industry. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria for us tonight. And Keith, it's $69 million. Sounds mm -hmm. like a lot, but uh, explain what it will be used for. Yeah, it's basically to help the workers who have been laid off or displaced uh, because of the crisis in the forest industry. 6,000 people have actually been permanently laid off or have lost shifts because of mill uh, curtailment of operations. Here's how the money breaks down. A $69 million financial aid package uh, going to workers affected by this. Uh, first of all, $40 million, the biggest chunk, is for early retirement bridging for older workers to make the transition into retirement. $50 million for job creation, but not traditional forestry jobs. We're talking fire prevention and other projects in the community. $12 million for skills training and $2 million for a new job placement coordination office. We caught up with the Forest Minister, Doug Donaldson, who made the announcement today. And just, uh, BC Liberal Forest critic John Rustad, not impressed by what he sees as inaction by the government, actually trying to fix the problem. We want industry to be partners in this. Company approaches to closures and curtailments have varied, and we need to work together to create a uniform, fair, and organized response to those impacted by closures. The reality is workers want to work. They'd love to be able to be operating and so far there has been uh, no reaction and no steps taken by this government to actually try to reduce costs and make our industry more competitive. So it's unclear whether the industry is going to partner with the government here, considering companies are losing money left and right. No company, no forest company in BC is making any money and doesn't expect to anytime soon. The running count, as I mentioned, 6,000 employees. 25 mills have been affected here, either permanently or temporarily, in 22 communities. And in many of those communities, this is the biggest and if not the only game in town. So it's obviously having a devastating impact on local economies around BC. It certainly is. All right, Keith Baldry and Victoria, thank you, Keith. Yeah. Well, potentially some good news today for opponents of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. The B.C. Court of Appeal is ordering the province to reconsider its environmental assessment certificate for the project. The challenge put forward by the Squamish Nation and the City of Vancouver was based on the argument the provincial approval of the project was based on a flawed National Energy Board ruling. Federal government is not required by law to have a provincial certificate, but there are parts of the project where BC has jurisdiction. The provincial government is still reviewing the decision, but is expecting to consult a wide range of First Nations on the certificate. I think uh, any First Nation with an interest on matters that uh, are related to the BC certificate or potential uh, conditions that we would review or, or may amend or may add to would be uh, consulted by us. That is our uh, constitutional and legal duty and one, of course, which we take seriously given our uh, commitment to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You'll hear the word miracle used a lot, but this next story is about as close as it gets. A Quinell man is grateful to be alive, recovering in hospital after a 70-foot fall while hiking. 
Catherine Urquhart explains how it happened and why it's a warning to others. Okay, ready? One, two, three. The pain clearly excruciating. <sighs> As 23-year-old Morgan Robinson is carefully turned on his side, his badly broken body now partially paralyzed after surviving a major fall. When I went over the edge, the first thing I thought about was my daughter and I had the thought process of I need to land on my feet because if I land any other way, I'm not going to make it. And when I landed, obviously I was in a lot of pain, but even, even right then and there, I knew I was alive. Robinson was hiking with a friend near Quinnell's Dragon Lake September 11th when he lost his footing, falling, he estimates, 70 to 80 feet. How many broken bones do you have? Probably seven or eight. I got three broken vertebrae in my, in my spine. Um, I broke my wrist and the bone actually poked through my inner left wrist and then my, uh, my right, feel, right foot has some fractures and then my left heel and ankle are completely shattered. He was airlifted to VGH and following operations on his back, arm and feet is stable. Now facing months of recovery, the youth care worker admits that at the time he was on his phone and not paying attention. Now he's warning others. We're close to the edge. Rocks are loose. They may not look it, but they are. When I slipped, I thought for half a second that I could grab the edge or that I could save myself. And before I knew it, that, that was it. It happened in the blink of an eye. As Robinson's friends fundraise for him, he's looking ahead to more time with his five-year-old daughter, Lily, knowing that he truly is very fortunate to be alive. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. In the meantime, the Vancouver Police Department now has three drones for use in daily operations, saying the tools will greatly enhance their ability to keep the city safe and solve crimes. Grace Key has more on how and when the equipment will be used and what the department says about privacy concerns. Drones have already been used by several policing agencies across the country, and now the Vancouver Police Department will be adding three to its arsenal of crime-fighting tools. I want to assure the public that we will not be using these um, drones for surveillance purposes and that we have taken those concerns uh, seriously. While drones won't be used for surveillance or peaceful protests, they will be used for investigations into motor vehicle collisions, crime scene analysis, search and rescues, disaster zones and large public gatherings such as the celebration of light. Cameras are something the public seems to be getting used to. If it's for public safety, I would say it's fine. Uh, I would be okay with that. Well, cameras are everywhere anyways, right? So what's really the difference? Is it just something for everybody to complain about? At the end of the day, if you're not doing anything wrong, then why would you mind getting filmed? The Vancouver Police Department consulted with the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner and the BC Civil Liberties Association on its use of drones policy. The association commends the department for its extensive research and consultation, but still has some concerns. One thing that we'd really like to see is uh, public reporting um, on a consistent basis um, so that we can continue to trust the police and that they're not using this new surveillance technology in a way that they shouldn't be. We will be 
taking all uh, reasonable steps to try and prevent, um, I guess, the unauthorized obtaining of information and data and video that we shouldn't uh, be obtaining otherwise. And again, there'll be a review process by the pilots to uh, make sure that anything doesn't, that doesn't have evidentiary value or wasn't obtained lawfully isn't retained. If the Vancouver Police Board approves the policy on Thursday, the drones could be in the air by the end of the year. Grace Key, Global News. Well, TV personality Rick Mercer is accustomed to commenting on Canadian politics, but tonight he's personally embroiled in a B.C. political controversy. It began with this Facebook post by the Burnaby North Seymour Cons uh, Conservative Constituency Association that quotes Mercer as urging young people to do the unexpected and vote conservative. In the original quote from Mercer's TV show, he simply urges young people to vote. Well, Mercer tweeted conservative leader Andrew Scheer saying the quote was not true and all fake and also saying, please stop. Tonight, the conservative party is saying the original post was from someone in its electoral district association and no one involved in the campaign. It has since been taken down. Another new poll shows the Liberal and Conservative parties neck and neck in the election campaign. As Global's Travis Donraj reports, the focus on the trail today is how to make life more affordable. Andrew Scheer was in Winnipeg Tuesday morning with a proposal to increase grants for education. The Conservative leader says he'll up the amount Ottawa contributes to registered education savings plans, or RESPs. As Prime Minister, I will increase the RESP grant from 20% to 30% for every dollar they put into their RESP up to a maximum grant of $750 a year. In Ottawa Centre, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh pledged to build half a million affordable homes across the country in a decade if elected. People who need housing are seeing less investments by this government, by the Liberal government. And that's really troubling to me. The NDP see Ottawa Centre as a battleground riding. It was held by the party for years before slipping away to the Liberals and Environment Minister Catherine McKenna during the last election. Yeah, I'm to be here. Singh then headed to the North Bay, Ontario area, where he took part in the international plowing match. Justin Trudeau was in eastern Canada. No one should have to choose between their paycheck and their family. In St. John's, Trudeau made a promise to parents, saying he'd increase the Canada Child Benefit by 15% if re-elected. If you have kids under the age of one, that means getting up to $1,000 more on top of what you're already receiving. And to give people more money up front, we're making maternity and parental benefits tax-exempt at source. Whether it's housing, education or parental benefits, seven days in we've seen a multitude of major announcements reducing the cost of living for Canadians and we're likely to see many more. Affordability is a key issue for many voters and it could be the deciding factor when they head to the polls next month. Travis Danraj, Global News. Well, when it comes to affordability, you won't find many issues that matter more to Metro Vancouverites than the cost of housing. As Aaron MacArthur reports, new numbers show many Metro Vancouver ridings have the most expensive rental rates in the country. While this empty lot in Port Coquitlam will soon be home to 80 families, it can't come soon enough. Metro Vancouver, in the midst of an affordability crisis... And it would take thousands of new homes right now just to meet the demand. This crisis is kind of a long time in the making, so I'm not sure if there's any short-term solutions. Rental housing 
could become a key component of the federal election. New data from the Canadian Rental Housing Index paints a bleak picture. Six of the most unaffordable federal ridings in Canada are right here in Metro Vancouver. In Richmond, Vancouver Quadra and West Van, more than half of all renters pay more than 30% of their income to rent. In three more ridings, a quarter of people pay half their income to rent. When we did the analysis for the different demographic groups, we see single mothers, um, seniors, uh, young households overspending on rent, as well as uh, Indigenous households, new immigrants. While housing is an issue, affordable, family-friendly rental housing seems to have passed all the political parties by. While the Conservatives haven't talked housing yet, the NDP are promising half a million homes for low-income earners, and the Liberals promising homebuyers relief. I would ask every voter to look for this principle in the platforms that is attracting their attention. Homes first. The idea that housing first has to be a place to call home and not a way to get rich. Still weeks left in the campaign, and affordable rental housing might still make waves. But rental housing is an issue that hasn't in the past moved the needle for voters. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Dozens of people in Argentina scramble to save some orcas stranded on a beach. City workers, firefighters and marine biologists came together and managed to get six of the whales back out to deeper water. A seventh died and experts will perform a necropsy to determine if any health problems might have led to the beaching. Back here in Canada, the commissioner of the RCMP is taking some tough questions about the arrest of one of her own, a top civilian security official. Mercedes Stevenson has more on what the Mounties are revealing about Cameron J. Ortis and their investigation into his alleged crimes. It's right here at RCMP headquarters where Cameron Ortis, the man accused of stealing Canadian secrets and trying to sell them, was arrested by the Sensitive and International Investigations Unit of the RCMP. Today, for the first time, Commissioner Brenda Lucky took questions about the allegations and the arrest and discussed the event with reporters. The news of his arrest has shaken many people throughout the RCMP, particularly in federal policing, as well as the broader domestic and international security. Lockie said the RCMP first learned about possible corruption inside the RCMP when they were assisting the FBI with an investigation. Global News has learned that that investigation was into a company named Phantom Secure, an encrypted cell phone service that criminals used to evade police detection. Today, the Mounties remained tight-lipped about what they know, saying they're still trying to get a sense of the scale of the damage, but have put into place mechanisms to try to mitigate any further leaks. Lucky also insisted that the force has been able to assure their allies that there are no further leaks, but would not say whether or not they've been able to ascertain if Ortis was working alone. 47-year-old Cameron Ortis was the director general of the National Intelligence Coordination Center here at RCMP headquarters, meaning that he had an extraordinarily high level of security clearance and access to every criminal national security counter-drug investigation that the RCMP was involved in. He also had access to intelligence that was being shared by allies. Ortis is facing multiple counts of trying to share secret Canadian information that sources say was found in part in his condo. Today, Commissioner Brenda Lucky acknowledged that the allegations have shaken the force to its core and insisted there will be no further leaks and that the force is doing everything it can to address the situation. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa. 
Firefighters in a Hungarian town were excited to put on a fire safety show for students, complete with a burning car. But they were apparently a little too eager. After the driver loses control and lays the truck on its side, other firefighters race to the rescue. Meantime, the demonstration fire they were supposed to be putting out burns freely. Five firefighters were taken to hospital and treated for minor injuries, including presumably some for bruising their professional pride. Unreal. In Health Matters tonight, an amazing achievement for an American marathon swimmer. Sarah Thomas has just fought and beaten breast cancer. So she celebrated by doing something no one else has ever done. Today, the 37-year-old became the first person to swim the English Channel four times, non-stop. The more than 200-kilometer swim took her 54 hours. And she was only allowed to refuel on liquid formula. She finally crawled out of the water exhausted to some champagne and chocolate. A setback for Alex Trebek tonight in his ongoing battle with pancreatic cancer. The 79-year-old Jeopardy host says he's now undergoing another round of chemotherapy after his numbers spiked shortly after he finished his first round. His doctors are also concerned that he's lost a lot of weight. Trebek says he suffers from pain, nausea, and depression at times, but takes optimism from the fact that he's still here. And, of course, we wish him the best in his continued treatment. Well, the University of B.C. is celebrating the 100th anniversary of a landmark achievement, establishing the first nursing school in the Commonwealth to offer a degree. As Linda Aylesworth reports, exploring the history of the school shows just how much nursing has changed in the past century. The UBC School of Nursing's class of 2019 graduated in an auspicious year, and not just because this is the school's 100th anniversary. We are the first baccalaureate university-based school of nursing, not just in Canada, but throughout the British Commonwealth. It's not that there weren't nursing schools before 1919. St. Paul's opened one in 1907, Vancouver General in 1875, but... All of nurse education was diplomas offered through hospitals. There were some classes, but a lot of the work was just learning by doing um, and working as a nurse. Here's that historical feeding cup. Yeah, Clearly that, things were broth. It was a time when nurses were either nuns or... They were all very young and very white. And they were all single. And they were women. How things have changed, not just here at UBC School of Nursing, but everywhere. Nursing attracts all ethnicities and genders. Bernie Garrett studied in the UK and was one of three men in his class to earn a Bachelor of Science in Nursing over 30 years ago. Well, it was interesting. Obviously, we were, we were outnumbered. It did take a while for people to be accept male nurses. In time, he went on to become a doctor of nursing. Having a PhD is really helpful to doing research as a nurse. Um, and so I wanted to actually have a qualification and the skills to undertake research. His field of study? Providing relief from cancer pain by using virtual reality, which, so the theory goes, distracts patients from their discomfort. 
Yes, so we're interested in uh, basically one, does it work, but also which sorts of environment work best and also uh, which parts of the brain are engaged when it's using. Pain management has always been a key part of nursing and continues to be. Much has changed over the last 100 years, the people, the knowledge and the techniques, but the desire to provide comfort and care for the ill is very much the same. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. What goes up must come down. Why residents are right to be a little nervous when they see a balloon floating by. That's right after the forecast. So here we are, just a little more than halfway through September, and we've had a lot of rain. Mm -hmm. Let's check in with Christy to see what else is coming in the forecast. Christy? Thanks, Chris. And so if we added another 10 to 25 millimeters of rain to our region today after we already have average for the entire month, so 50 millimeters, and now we've tacked on another 10 to 25, depending on your area. We officially transitioned to fall on Monday, and it's already feeling like that. And we even had our first snowfall of the season in Whistler today. First, so I want to show you this from yesterday. We had so many people sending us photos of rainbows. Thank you for sharing those with us. Uh, it's very common that we get rainbows when we get these pockets of rain and then these breaks of blue sky. Even when we don't see the blue sky in between, we get these strong pockets of rain. That's where we see it. And then that type of system can also bring the first snowfall. Here's why. It's basically a cold upper level low. Cold air, higher terrain, thus the snowfall over Whistler. And that creates instability across the atmosphere and we get these pockets of rain. And instead of the rain coming consistently with a system, it becomes more pockets. And you can certainly see that all across the south coast. We will continue to see pockets of rain overnight, maybe even a slight risk of a thunderstorm before it pushes out. Yes, this upper level low will shift out of the region. We've got a couple of dry days on the way. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're sunny, but a couple dry days on the way, which will be a lot nicer than what we've had in the last couple of days. Now, those of you across the north will mainly see sunshine tomorrow. So with the transition already happening for your region, whereas the south, we still have some instability expected in the morning. So you may see some snow over higher terrain tomorrow morning. You may even see a rainbow. But that should shift out of the region. You'll be left with more, well, drier weather by the afternoon and the potential for more sunshine. Sunshine by the afternoon for these areas here. Still a chance of showers for these areas, mainly in the morning before that sunshine returns. Thursday dry, but still some cloud cover. More sunshine expected on Friday. And then we return to a chance of showers over the weekend. And I'll leave you with one last shot of a rainbow in Chilliwack. Thanks to Emily for catching that one. That's a cool one. Yeah, that cool. looks really neat. Thanks, Christy. A San Diego counselor grabbed his cell phone when he saw an emergency landing in progress. Sounds like a whale breaching. That is a hot air balloon forced to crash land in the middle of his suburban neighborhood. Mark Kersey credits the pilot, though, for bringing it down in a parking lot, narrowly missing the houses. And in a strange variation of lightning strikes twice, Kersey says this is actually the second time this year that a hot air balloon has come down in his neighborhood. It's the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it oh, yeah. You're cool. right, though. It sounded like a whale breaching there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Squire's back with sports, putting the finishing touches on the sportscast. Come see, come saw for the Canucks. Well done. <laughs>
What I'm language say, is that? Some, you lose you some. Yeah, same deal. Come see, Is that French? <laughs> it is. I know. <laughs> could you say it in German, though? You probably oh. could. Think right, about give it. Give me a minute. Think about give it. Come back to us. Uh, the Canucks both won and lost against Calgary last night. They split the teams up. They played two games in two different cities. Tonight, they're at Rogers Arena. The Canucks are against Edmonton. Elias Pettersson will play. Quinn Hughes will play this evening. You'll see Tyler Myers out there, Michael Furland, Thatcher Demko will get some time in goal. Uh, Brock Besser won't be with the Canucks until tomorrow, so he's obviously not playing. None of the Oilers' big names are playing in this game, but former Vancouver Giant Tyler Benson will be out there for Edmonton, and he actually has a pretty good chance to make the Oilers this year. Now, last night, one of those Canuck games, the one in Victoria, featured J.T. Miller. And Miller, I know it's the first game of exhibition, and Calgary didn't have any of its big guys out there, but this is a nice give-and-go between Miller and Horvat. We still don't know where Miller's going to fit in. Will it be with Pedersen, or will it be with Horvat on the second line? It'll be one of the top two lines. Put some good chemistry right there. Well, the best story from UFC fight night at Rogers Arena last Saturday was BC lightweight Tristan Connolly. Born in Victoria, now fighting out of Vancouver, his win in his first UFC fight literally brought the house down. One of the loudest cheers UFC officials have ever heard at one of their shows. He has made the big time now, but it took a long time for Tristan to get there. It's a story of never giving up on a dream because you never know when, where, or how that dream might come true. One of my corners told me, he's like, man, if, if you made this into a movie, he'd be like, I wouldn't buy it. I'd be like, this is Hollywood garbage. Tristan Connolly didn't know he'd be fighting his first UFC event until five days before. They called him late Monday night while he was working at his gym for the Saturday bout as a replacement against veteran Michelle Pereira. I just threw the roof so excited, ran around the gym screaming. It was local guy getting a shot at a charismatic fighter in front of his hometown crowd, like a modern-day Rocky. It's funny that you say that when I was sitting in the UFC's office and my ringtone's actually the Rocky Rocky theme song and they, they all look at me and they're like that's your ringtone I'm like man what's wrong with that and they're like that's amazing like we love it they also love him because he defied the odds he beat someone who was above his normal weight class someone who fights like a character from mortal Kombat. the ufc is uh, ecstatic with me right now they're like you're supposed to go in there and get killed uh out of nowhere against this guy that is huge but what the ufc did know is Connolly wasn't just happy to be there he had a plan to win, and a large part of that plan was to let Pereira tire himself out. Circles his way in, another flying knee. This guy's a man. I was just trying to make him work and trying to build his confidence within himself. I wanted him to feel confident so he would go for his craziness that I knew he would do. So I let him hit me, let him hit me, kept going, kept going, started calling, come on, come on, let's go. So build his confidence, and then sure enough, worked like a charm. And I saw him turn around and breathe, and I just jumped up on him. And from that point, I knew there was not a step backwards, not a moment I could let him breathe. Connolly dominated the final round, taking it to the scorecards for the biggest announcement of his professional career. For the winner, by unanimous decision, Tristan 
it was nice to have my UFC debut go like that. I mean, like they say, all the little details that came together really, really make it for like a movie, movie story. Good for him. Okay. Earlier this month, the BC Lions made a change when they brought in Kelly Bates to be their new offensive line coach. And that change produced a big change. Because in the last couple of games, quarterback Mike Riley's uniform has been a lot cleaner and his body has not been as sore as it was earlier in the season when he was getting bounced around by defenders like a basketball. So it appears Kelly Bates has gotten the O-line to serve and protect a lot better than before. Yeah, it's a, you know Kelly's a technician. He brings a, he brings some technically. He's really hard hard on the details and try to eliminate the bad habits and make the guys who their strength even more and their weaknesses disappear. So they're doing a good job of buying in. I mean, they've been pros through this whole process, through the change and everything, and they've they've embraced it. And you can see the play on the field, you know, vindictive of that. Two-time Olympic champion Kaylee Humphreys has been told by a Calgary judge that bobsleigh Canada is within its rights to deny her a release so she can race for the United States. Bobsleigh Canada also said they investigated Humphreys' claims that she was verbally and mentally abused by her coach but found no evidence of harassment. Humphreys also is suing bobsleigh Canada for $45 million for not releasing her to compete for the U.S. Defending champs Liverpool defending champs of Champions League against Napoli the first game of round-robin play. Napoli had a controversial penalty goal and then they add this by Fernando Llorente to make it a 2-0 final over Liverpool. There you go. What was it? So oh yes. So vidas. So vidas. So vidas. So vidas. It's kind of like it is what it is, I think. We pulled out the Google oh, It is what it is. That's Todd Bertuzzi <laughs> language. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes, we had German, French, and Todd Bertuzzi. Coming up on ET Canada, big time drama behind the scenes of Dancing with the Stars, plus new previews of The Good Place, Superstore, and The Great Canadian Baking Show. That's coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to Chris and Sophie. All right. Thanks, Cheryl. Politicians and beer industry royalty gathered in Chilliwack today for the grand opening of the new Molson Coors Fraser Valley Brewery. Now, the huge new facility replaces the iconic brewery we all know at the south end of Vancouver's Burrard Bridge. And as Global's Ted Chernecki reports, the new plant will soon take on the exploding craft brewery sector. Cut the ribbon. Like those scissors, most things here are big, but not everything. Yes, it is now the largest brewery in Western Canada, run by a family now legendary in the beer business. John Molson started brewing in Canada in 1786. That makes our family the oldest continuously operating brewer in the Americas. Some of these vats are actually smaller, but there are more of them than they had at the old brewery on Burrard Street. We're actually doing the same amount, we're just doing smaller batches, um, which allows us to do more different batches and be flexible, especially as we do some craft and more specialty products, right. where you know consumers might be interested for a certain season, and we don't make a lot of it, and we can make it more often to keep it fresh. 
Five years ago, Molson sold the Burrard Street facility to Concord Pacific for $185 million. This prized real estate will be developed into a mix of commercial and residential units. But even with that sale, Molson says it had to add another $115 million to build their new brewery and distribution center. This one is definitely more efficient. It's very clear that we have created a significant amount of jobs in the last three years during construction. I think we're talking about close to a thousand. And we're still creating around 100 jobs uh, here in the, in the Chilliwack community with a new brewery. This place is highly automated. 100 employees is about a third of the number of workers required in the old brewery to do the same thing. Craft breweries now take about 30% of the marketplace. Such a massive investment by Molson's shows the big guys aren't about to watch market share slip away without a fight. There definitely is a, some healthy, we think, great competition from the beer category. It's healthy to have the, the craft and micro facilities producing great products and getting interest in beer because that's just good for the beer industry. Molson's Coors expects to add 30 new brands over the four seasons in the year. Ted Chernecki, Global News. And I cannot look at a beer production line without thinking of Laverne and Shirley. Right. I'm, I'm aging myself there, and I understand that. But uh, with the gloves on. The yeah, someone should put a glove on one of the bottles that's, right. that's going through. Yeah. It's true. Okay, la- aging all of us really. Yeah, really. I saw you know that, exactly I saw that show on MeTV. I never saw when it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, five day. Sure. Uh, Chance of showers still tomorrow morning, but we are expecting sunshine by the afternoon. Thursday, Friday looking good. Not complete sunshine, but drier weather, that's for sure. And more rainbows, maybe. Maybe. Great photos last a little while. All right, thanks for watching. Have a good night. Good night, all.